Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, man. Uh, like I said in past episodes, I'm just dreading this travel that's about to happen, but we are getting ready for it by recording a ton of episodes these last two weeks. We haven't had a backlog like this in a while, and boy, we got another good one for you. James Presswich of Suma comes on to POV Crypto, the right podcast to talk about this subject, TBTC. Oh shit, we never asked him if it was tokenized or trustless. We don't know what T stands for. Um, I don't think anyone does. I think it's actually a, a hidden secret. Um, but tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum. Uh, we have wrapped Bitcoin. It's a federated trusted system. Uh, TBTC is a trust minimized system of getting Bitcoin onto Ethereum without inflating the Bitcoin total supply uh, and doing it in a perpetually redeemable, no KYC uh, mechanism. Super cool subject. Like I said, the right podcast to, to get this done at. Yeah, definitely. And the beautiful thing about TBTC is that it is um, very, very trust minimized and um, it really plays on game theoretics on both ends. And you know what's really cool is that in the future, our sponsor Haven app, they're going to integrate Ether into their application. And then hopefully TBTC will be uh, available on there in their standard ERC20 wallet. So there's a lot of things you can do with TBTC, including buy things in a very private and very uh, trust minimized way on our sponsor, the Haven app. And it just makes sense for uh, trust minimized uh, TBTC to be put inside of Haven, which is itself a trust minimized app because you don't need a uh, an email or a password to use it. You just download the app and you're given your wallets uh, and that's how you can fund your wallet. And for those that don't know, Haven is a sort of Craigslist, Amazon, eBay uh, app. So you can buy stuff with your crypto without giving up your identity, uh, which is just super cool. Christian, uh, as a Bitcoiner, are you excited about TBTC? You know my motto, man. Everything is good for Bitcoin. So yeah, why not? <laughs> so if TBTC comes around and it's executed and it's provably trustless and you can always redeem it back to the Bitcoin blockchain, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? You're going to make a CDP and maker? You know... Experience DeFi, brother. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. You know, to be honest, you know, I have a little bit of ETH in my wallet from, from my, my mining payouts. And I've been investigating a couple of uh, couple of apps that can mess around in the DeFi space. So maybe when I get my bearings around that, uh, I'll throw some sats at this. But we'll see. I mean... In the long run, uh, I'm, I'm a hodler. I'm holding on to this for, for pretty far out, and I'm not willing to risk any meaningful amount of Bitcoin on you know anything short of astronomical returns, and still it'd only be uh, you know a percentage allocation. Yeah, so you're going to throw some sats at some DeFi apps in TBTC. Can TBTC be called TATS? So you're going to throw some TATS at some DeFi applications, and then you're going to get your alpha. And then you're just going to throw more tats at it. And then you're going to throw all your tats at it. And then you're going to be an Ethereum. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, man. That's funny. We'll see. We'll see how that works out. But uh, regardless, I love this concept. Uh, I've tweeted about James Presswitch many times. 
you know, saying that this man is Signal. So I'm really excited that he came onto the podcast. I think this one turned out really great. So without any further ado, let's get right into it. James Presswich. James Presswich, thank you for coming on POV Crypto. Welcome. Oh, no problem. How's it going, guys? Very good. Very good. Um, so we like to position ourselves as the Ether versus Bitcoin podcast. Uh, we have a lot of fun times arguing about about all the different topics, both Bitcoin and Ethereum and the intersection, which uh, the intersection seems to have just grown a lot bigger uh, with uh, what you and your team has produced. Uh, TBTC is a, an interesting uh, product to come into the space and definitely a much improved product upon wrapped Bitcoin. Um, James, can you kind of go through the origin of uh, TBTC and, uh, and also the, the team that's working on it? Uh, yeah. I mean, TBTC is kind of the culmination of the last year and a half of our work at Suma. Um, we started out back in early 2018 working on just any cross-chain interoperability project. We prototyped a bunch of financial instruments between Bitcoin and Ethereum. And uh, last fall, we kind of got this idea on how to improve cross-chain communication pretty drastically. And so uh, TBTC fell out of that. I guess a, a good way to think about it is, you know, we had all these atomic swaps. They were ways for people to transact, but what we were missing was a way for Ethereum to directly read Bitcoin state. And so TBTC came about after we figured out how to do that. And we've been working on it for about eight months now full time and so what was the the main motivation for producing it uh well i wanted to use it and uh you know we partnered with keep to do this and i know that matt over at keep wanted to use it as well uh we're both kind of old school bitcoin people we've been working you know on startups in the space since before ethereum existed uh you know our opinion here is that Ethereum and DeFi are better with Bitcoin. And so we wanted this product and that's why we went out and built it together. And so uh, one of the core principles, I believe, of TBTC is that it's non-rent seeking because if it was, then it wouldn't be the product that we're really looking for, right? It's, it's not DeFi. Uh, and it's also not Bitcoin because, uh, well, it's, it wouldn't be used by Bitcoiners if it's a rent-seeking platform. Uh, so is, is the motivation or the impetus for producing this TBT system just really because it needed to be built? Is it just your own? Uh, is it Do you consider it like volunteer work or is there a way for you guys uh, to be financially motivated to produce it? You know, we think that there's a lot of ancillary services around this that are going to be profitable. Uh, we also think that you know, as we repeat this model with more assets on more chains, bringing, you know, Zcash to Cosmos or Ethereum to Tezos, uh, we think that there's going to be a lot of opportunities to, you know, monetize effectively there. Um, bringing Bitcoin to Ethereum is the first project out of many. James, I'm kind of curious, why are you, uh, it seems like you're kind of staking your your work right now on this idea of interoperability and kind of bringing assets across chain. Uh, you know, I'm for, for the most part, I'm a, I don't pay attention to the other chains very much just because uh, I don't really see a whole lot of value in them outside of supporting Bitcoin. I know that David extends that a little bit more to Bitcoin and Ethereum. 
Um, kind of curious, you know, where do you kind of, you know, see the cryptocurrency space? Um, do you prescribe to a multi-chain world where there's a lot of chains that matter and that we're going to want to have interoperability with? Well, I mean, it kind of depends on how you think about what matters in a chain. What we're seeing happen in the broader ecosystem is a trade-off between small amounts of extremely secure, high-quality block space, which is where Bitcoin's at, and you know, unbounded amounts of very low-quality block space, which is what we're seeing with you know, like Cosmos and parachains in uh, Polkadot, and all of these. You know, like it's what we're seeing with. Cosmos zones and Polkadot parachains and all of these other chain ecosystems out there, right? Their goal is to just have as much block space as possible. This isn't like, there's not a clear winner here. We think that the most valuable assets are going to be homed on the most secure, highest quality chains. But there's lots of room for private chains and federations. You know, even Bitcoin has a federation nowadays. there's not going to be a clear winner in this space. There's going to be lots of applications that are dr- driven by application-specific chains, and our goal is to bring the highest quality assets to the most chains. So let's get into the details of how TBTC actually works and, and why it's such a big improvement upon our current uh, option, which is wrapped Bitcoin. Um, can you, I know this is probably super hard, but can you summarize TBTC in just like a, a couple sentences, and then we can kind of get into the details from there. Sure. Um, kind of the tagline we've been using to describe it in a sentence is TBTC is a bonded, multi-federated supply peg. So there's three parts there. Bonded means that the security is economic. The system has enough uh, capital to make itself whole if anything goes wrong. Um, it's not a purely cryptographic system, unfortunately. If we could do it that way, we definitely would. Uh, multi-federated means that it's made up of many federations, obviously. In this case, what it means is that rather than having one central custodian holding all the Bitcoins, anyone can enroll to become part of a federation. Uh, and each federation has control over a small amount of Bitcoin. Uh, So rather than having one large federation like Liquid or one central custodian like WBTC, TBTC uses many small uh, signing groups. Um, And then it's a supply peg. So the goal here is not to make a price peg or a synthetic asset. We're not trying to make DAI BTC. We're trying to create an asset that is redeemable for Bitcoin on demand. And what that means is for every TBTC out there, there should be one Bitcoin held in reserve by one of these federations. So, you know, the actual process of getting Bitcoin into a federation and keeping track of its state while it's there and making sure that nobody steals it and it doesn't wander off on its own somewhere is really involved and complex. And that's kind of what's taken the longest amount of time to build. James, I'm kind of curious, what was your your and your team's inspiration in putting together this kind of game theoretical mechanism? It seems like there's like traces of, uh, like you said, federated products like Liquid. I even kind of, I know that you guys have some sort of, not necessarily like a governance token, but a, a separate token aspect um, to it. Um, you know, where's kind of like that the game theoretical inspiration coming from? And are there other projects that you can point to? There's definitely prior art here. 
you know, we've known how to do this with federations for quite a while. The nice part about a federation is they can do anything as long as they're majority honest. Unfortunately, you know, the honesty assumption doesn't hold up when there's a lot of money involved. So the main you know, like innovation here is taking these federated models that we've known about and adding economic assumptions rather than honesty assumptions. We took a lot of inspiration from DAI with CDPs, although, you know, as I said earlier, this is not a synthetic asset and does not behave like a CDP in practice. Um, we took a lot of inspiration from existing federated models. And the key you know, like thing that we added onto them is the ability to actually check the Federation's uh, behavior on chain. The majority of TVTC's smart contracts is logic to watch what a Federation actually does and ensure that it is doing the correct thing. So there's no governance, correct? It's all... There's no like governance token and there's no uh, there's no um, voting or anything like that. It is purely a piece of code. Uh, and like you said, it's not a cryptographic bridge. Um, it is a is a game theory bridge, right? Is that all of that correct? Uh, yeah, we're as far as I know, not have launching with a governance token. Um, the security of the system is economic. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, as far as governance goes, there's questions over what we do when we upgrade the system, and we haven't quite ironed out all the details yet. But yeah, it's an economic construction primarily. Kind of one of the criticisms I generally have towards DeFi is, um, you know, with this idea of money Legos, like what if uh, one of the Legos is broken? What if this is kind of like a house of cards? Um, what is like, I guess my question is, you know, what is preventing, um, you know, TBTC from breaking um, if this greater ETH DeFi ecosystem has an issue? You know, we've tried to build TBTC to be as secure as we can possibly make it. Um, like with any secure system, you have to think about how it composes with other systems, right? Um, so if... Ethereum breaks, obviously TBTC is broken. Um, other than that, I don't know that there is a DeFi construction that can break the economic security. So it's not any risk above and beyond. So take, for example, if, if TBTC ends up in Compound and then Compound has like a parity bug incident and the TBTC is locked in Compound, then the TBTC is locked in Compound. But that's the TBTC protocol the bridge has there's no threat there right is that the earth the right way of understanding it? right uh that tbtc you know okay suppose tbtc gets burned mm -hmm. um like happened with any number of different ethereum contracts there is you know hypothetically not a threat to the tbtc system if that happens we've put a lot of like work into figuring out what would happen but Essentially, there would be Bitcoin held in reserve for those TBTC. So it would just be debt. added to the pool of total lost Bitcoin. James, what's kind of the process of taking this project from, you know, I guess uh, a state where you and your team are handholding it for it to transform into robust decentralized architecture or uh, infrastructure? You know, there's a lot of 
That's a really good question. Um, it's one thing to talk about the economics behind it and the theory of how it should work, and it's another thing to go out and write the code to actually do that. Uh, so throughout this whole process, we've taken a very engineering-forward approach to designing and working with TBTC. Um, before we announced it, the Keep team put together a full deposit DAC. So we already have the code for a, you know, we already have the code for an in-browser user-driven setup experience with no hand-holding from Suma or Keep. Uh, we have a lot of the code written for these signers already, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how much we build into that module. Um, some of the economics of the system is driven on arbitrage. Uh, do we actually build the arbitrage modules, or do we allow someone else to do that? We haven't quite figured out our full approach to this, but it is something that we take a very engineering forward approach, and our goal is to make this practical, not to publish research papers about it. So I would expect to see a, you know, Suma and Keep publish a lot of this code for anyone to use. So before we get too far into talking about implications, let's actually kind of walk through TPTC and how a Bitcoin might uh, go through the protocol and arrive on Ethereum. Can you kind of take us step by step through the process? Sure. So if you want to deposit Bitcoin and receive TPTC, the first thing you're going to do is request a new signing group. So this is uh, this happens on the Ethereum chain. Uh, you're requesting a new group. Uh, a group is randomly selected from available signers. They go through a key generation process and create a shared ECDSA key. Uh, no member of the group has the private key. Everybody knows the public key, and they can cooperate to make signatures under the public key. Um, so from the public key, you can derive a Bitcoin address. And so when you request a signing group, they're going to give you back a Bitcoin address to send your coin to. Um, right now, we use a standard lot size, uh, which I think is set to one Bitcoin for testing. Uh, it may be higher or lower than that when we go uh, mainnet. Um, so you're going to send exactly one Bitcoin to this address. And later, uh, you or someone else will provide an SPV proof that you did so. So this is um, a Bitcoin transaction, a proof of inclusion in the Bitcoin chain, and enough headers with sufficient work to convince the smart contract that it's part of the Bitcoin main chain. Once the smart contract sees the proof, it knows that the signing group has custody of that Bitcoin, that it's held in a UTXO controlled by that key. And that's when the system issues new TBTC. As soon as it sees new Bitcoin has entered the reserve, it issues new TBTC. Um, deposits, which is what we call this structure, currently have a six-month lifespan. So for the next six months, the signers are responsible for staying online, keeping that Bitcoin in reserve, and servicing any redemption request that comes in. At any time, anyone can go to any deposit and ask for the underlying Bitcoin. And they do this by burning TBTC and specifying a delivery address for that Bitcoin. So the signer's responsibility is to be online and available to redeem on demand. 
if no one wants to redeem that deposit within six months, we go into what's called a courtesy call period. Uh, this is essentially telling the signers that the deposit is getting old and they should shut it down by redeeming it. So any signer can go in and make a redemption request during the courtesy call period. Anyone else can too, but the signers have an incentive to. Because if they don't, uh, we're going to forcibly close the deposit, and we do that by seizing their bond and using it to buy TBTC from the market. Each Bitcoin has a deposit that's managed by a signing group. The signing group's bonds are enough to, to cover the outstanding TBTC at any time. When someone wants to redeem, they choose any open deposit, send TBTC to be burnt, and expect Bitcoin within a few hours. James, if I'm not mistaken, uh, when someone puts, if someone wants to uh, kind of be that person that's part of the Federation and holds the Bitcoin, they have to put down Ethereum collateral. Um, that, is it correct that that has to be uh, 1.5x uh, the amount of BTC? So it'd be one and a half Bitcoins worth of Ether um, put down as collateral. Um, I guess my question is, what about the ETH ecosystem? Uh, makes you think that people will want to uh, put so much Ether down as collateral for the right to kind of host this Bitcoin? So there's a few different pieces there. Um, one is that we've seen a kind of crazy amount of demand for bonding Ether at very low returns on-chain already. So we know that a market for this sort of instrument exists. Two is that on redemption, the person redeeming the Bitcoin will pay a small amount of TBTC to the signing group. So you will be earning returns on your Ether denominated in TBTC. And then three, we're looking at bonding other assets as well. Uh, there's a lot of considerations here because you want the asset to be as correlated as possible to Bitcoin. If the asset is more correlated to Bitcoin, we can use a lower reserve ratio. So it took us a while to figure out that um, you know, we've been thinking about this as we want an asset that's highly correlated to Bitcoin. But what we realized fairly recently is that we actually want an asset that's correlated to TBTC. And there's actually an asset that is perfectly correlated to TBTC, which is um, TBTC. With the first version of deposits, you'll be able to bond as a signer in either Ether or TBTC. Um, remember that the goal of the bond is to purchase TBTC from the marketplace if anything goes wrong with the deposit. Uh, if we have TBTC held in a bond, we don't have to purchase any from the marketplace, we can just burn it on demand. So this actually significantly reduces the collateral requirements for each deposit. So I kind of want to just make sure that I got this right. Um, somebody who wants to put Bitcoin on Ethereum uh, makes a deposit, what you guys have in your white paper, a uh, deposit creation request on Ethereum to a group of signers. And a group of signers, how, how does the group of signers form? So you, uh, there's, it seems to be that there's going to be a bunch of people who could be selected, and then some of them are selected. Uh, how do you, if you want to be a signer, how do you indicate your desire to be one? And then when it comes time to... Uh, be chosen to be a mini federation out of the larger federation, how does that happen as well? This is a question for the keep team more than for me. Um, 
the Keep team, one of their main projects for the last year has been building a random beacon for Ethereum. So we're relying on access to good entropy on chain here to randomly select signers from the pool. Uh, so you would, if you want to be a signer, you would enroll by making the collateral available. Uh, you would wait to be randomly selected from the pool of available signers, and you would participate in the distributed key generation ceremony on demand. Okay. Uh, and then you also mentioned somebody uh, uh, submits the Bitcoin to the appropriate address that's created by all of the signers, uh, and then there's a, uh, a deposit period of six months, and then that automatically gets closed at the end of six months, as in that, that transfer from the Bitcoin blockchain to the Ethereum blockchain gets closed, and TBTC comes back to the deposit and then gets burnt. Is that correct? Yes. Why does it have to happen? Why can't it just be... Um, well, the answer to why it can't be indefinite is because then you would have to require signers to always be online indefinitely. But does that mean that the individual who got his deposit has to return it at some point in time? Uh, no. Once it's created, all TBTC is fungible. Mm. Um, and you're right that you know, the reason these aren't open indefinitely is it causes problems for the signers. We can't require someone to be online forever. And uh, the other thing that we realized early on is that uh, the signers need to be paid for their service. And uh, it is very difficult to manage a payment system on an open-ended deposit. We would have to deal with remargining the deposit owner, and that introduces this concept of ownership, someone responsible for paying those fees in an open-ended way. And the complexity of the system grows you know, very rapidly without actually providing any real benefits. Uh, so we decided to go with a fixed term deposit because it makes it simple while preserving all of the you know, properties that we want out of it. Um, once you've created TBTC, all of it is fungible. And so you can hold that without worrying about deposit expiry anymore. Um, if you don't want to redeem, just hold on to your TBTC and let other people redeem deposits. So does, it, does that mean that if you have TBTC uh, on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, can, how do you go back through the, how do you go backwards? Like what's that process look like? How do you redeem TBTC? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you have TBTC uh, and you want to redeem it, you're going to choose any open deposit and make a redemption request. Uh, this means paying back. Um, a redemption request requires you to pay in one TBTC plus the signer's fee. Right? And that one TBTC is burned, and the fee is held uh, until the signers perform you know, their duty and send you a Bitcoin. Okay. So when you make a redemption request, what you're actually doing is specifying details of a Bitcoin transaction that you want made. Uh, this includes the UTXO from that deposit, the fee that you want paid on the Bitcoin side, and the address where you want those coins sent. Um, the signers are responsible for producing a signature on that transaction in a reasonable amount of time, and then producing an inclusion proof for that transaction 
after they've produced the signature. So they're responsible for demonstrating to the contract that the transaction paying you one Bitcoin was confirmed on chain. Okay. So does that mean that there are, while there may be the same amount of TBTC on Ethereum, there's constantly Bitcoin and TBTC kind of being shuffled between the chains as uh, deposits are opened and closed? Yes. Okay. Uh, because deposits have a six-month term, the entire like deposit set will rotate out every six months. So the more and more TBTC on Ethereum, the more and more uh, the, uh, the signing group is making transactions on both, both blockchains, both Bitcoin and blockchains and, and Ethereum. And then there, the more economic activity is happening through this uh, bridge, if you call it a bridge. Is that correct? Right. Okay. Interesting. James, I want to ask you about what the Oracle situation is for TBTC and like where it is right now and uh, where do you think it needs to be in order, again, for this system to be robust? So where it is right now, um, we're not happy with it, but it is a you know centralized price feed. Um, it's important to note that unlike Maker, uh, interfering with the price feed does not have catastrophic effects on the system. We can go into this at length. Uh, suffice it to say that the price feed actually has very limited impact on the system compared to most other oracles. Where we'd like it to be is uh, fully decentralized pricing. And we have a good model for doing this. It just takes a lot of implementation work. Basically, you know, because we have cross-chain trades, you know, simple Ether for Bitcoin exchanged cross-chain as a tool in our toolbox, we can use cross-chain trades as a way of setting bounds on a fair Ether to Bitcoin rate, which is what we need to know. One of the simple models that Dan Robinson has been working on with us, uh, it's mostly his idea, is to have an order sitting on an order book. Uh, if an Ether sell order for Bitcoin is not filled within six hours, that means that it is not a fair price and we can use it as a bound on the Ether price denominated in Bitcoin. So this way we can get reliable information on uh, how much Ether is appropriate collateral for a deposit. This is um, very complex to build and requires you know, some amount of off-chain actors watching a known marketplace in order to maintain. Um, so this may or may not be in version one, but will definitely be in version two. I do want to talk about how the system upgrades, but but first I, I want to talk about uh, incentives. What is in it for signers? Where, how do they get paid? So whenever a deposit is redeemed, uh, there is a small fee in addition to the TBTC, and that's paid to signers. So a signer can expect a you know predictable income every six months or sooner. A predictable income as in they know the amount that they're going to be paid six months later? Right, denominated in TBTC. Okay. Um, uh, and again, because a deposit can be redeemed at any time, it's possible that mm. it will be paid before six months. Right, six months is the, the maximum time. Um, right. Um, how, how does a distributed, uh, decentralized group of signers uh, figure out what their fee is? Right now, this is set as a system parameter, and we haven't like put 
we haven't parameterized this, so any number I tell you now is going to change before production. Um, we hope to move to a market-based mechanism in the future, but we're not quite sure what it looks like yet. Okay, that sounds that makes sense. Um, and then, but there are other ways for them to receive uh, other, not fees, but other payments, right? So, um, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but the, uh, we have this lot size, right? Which means that uh, which you said is one, which means that you can't transfer, you know. 1.7432 bitcoins everyone has to transfer one bitcoin which just makes it super easy but you actually can't send one bitcoin on the bitcoin blockchain because of the way that the bitcoin gas or not gas fee the bitcoin transaction fee is, is managed and so um reading through your white paper it says that if you send below the lot size if you send 0.9998 uh bitcoins well then you don't get your tbtc and all of it is basically just donated to the signers, which incentivizes you to pay more than one Bitcoin, which really, really incentivizes you to pay more than one Bitcoin because you don't want to even come close to going below one Bitcoin. And so the uh, amount that you pay over is that that amount is donated to the signers, uh, which is another way for them to collect TBTC. Did I explain this correctly? It's a little more complex than that. So like in Bitcoin, when we talk about sending one Bitcoin somewhere, what we're talking about is creating a UTXO of 100 million Satoshi at a specific script. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, mm -hmm. Bitcoin, unlike Ethereum, doesn't have accounts with balances. We have UTXOs with sizes. So we can be sure that we will create a UTXO of exactly one Bitcoin at a specific address. Um, the question is, how many inputs are you going to have to consume to build that transaction and send yourself an appropriate amount of change? We actually have this at a place where we think it's reasonable to use any wallet uh, that supports SegWit, sending to SegWit addresses to fund deposits. The reason we want people to send the exact amount of Bitcoin to the uh, address is to preserve the lot size. The lot size is important for economic safety in version one. The reason is that signers need to be bonded in excess of the lot size. And so that means that we want to know that in advance. We want to know in advance how much Ether or TBTC a signer has to put up to participate in this system. You know, if the lot size is 100 Bitcoin, you're limiting your signer set to people who are willing to put up 150 Bitcoin worth of Ether in advance, which is a much, much smaller set than the people who are capable of putting up 1.5 in advance. And so when you get to that small a signer set, you're not really safe selecting randomly. The odds that you're going to get a colluding signing group are much higher. And so we want to have you know, a predictable lot size so that we can have safer assumptions on the security of the, assist, of the system. So we're still not 100% set on how we're going to handle overfunding. Um, underfunding essentially donates to the signers after the six months has expired. If they do anything with those coins before the six months have expired, uh, they will be penalized. Overfunding is similar, but not exactly the same. Overfunding most of the time will end up being a donation to whoever redeems the deposit. 
James, I kind of want to get into your head a little bit more about like how you see Bitcoin and Ethereum kind of evolving uh, together. Um, and I feel like th that question is kind of well encaps encapsulated in uh, this question. Do you think that TBTC will trade at a premium to BTC or vice versa? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I personally haven't you know, like started speculating on this much. I think that there's arguments both ways. Uh, given that there is, you know, some friction in setup and redemption, but there is more friction in redemption, we might see, like, TBTC trading at a premium, but I really don't know. Part of this depends on how fast you can make the loop, right? So, like, what, what's the fastest you think you can get Bitcoin to Ethereum and back? Two to three hours. Okay, so it's a th two to three hour arbitrage window, so it can't be that big. It's uh, it's still you know um, slower than we want. If we get a little fancy in future versions, we can actually do some of this over layer two, um, and in that case, we could go much faster than two to three hours. A lot of the times, we have to think about right. um, what uh, I like to call confirmation cycles. It's not a discrete you know, like number of seconds that you have to wait. You have to wait for a certain number of blocks on each side to get what you and the signers agree is finality. So what, what do you predict TBTC does when it finally comes to Ethereum? Like, What are you excited to do uh, with the future TBTC that, that will be on Ethereum? And, and what do you think the market will want to do? I'm really optimistic about TBTC in, you know, all of the standard DeFi applications, your Uniswaps, your compounds. There's lots of opportunities to use a you know, larger, more stable, more liquid asset in DeFi. I'd like to see you know, some ways of generating interest on Bitcoin uh, or some way of you know, lending it meaningfully. That's always been my biggest uh carrot i would say to to christian in previous episodes but to other bitcoiners is is uh and i don't know maybe you might have it's some might have stumbled across your twitter but uh, about like four three or four months ago i wrote this article called bringing bitcoin to ethereum um and then and then you know three months later you guys released this which is just great but it's all about the the uh symbiosis between having bitcoin on ethereum bitcoin with all the value and the liquidity and ethereum with with all the applications um and so it's it's going to be Bitcoiners' first mechanism of producing alpha on their Bitcoin is getting it in DeFi. But that's actually not even true because their first mechanism is getting alpha through TBTC, right? That TBTC will be the first DeFi application where Bitcoin can receive alpha. Do you know, can you guesstimate how much alpha somebody who wants to uh, stake their uh, Bitcoin in TBTC, how much they would get? You know, I really can't right now. We're still parameterizing this, and it's so up in the air. Uh, you know, today, your real choices for alpha on Bitcoin are using centralized lenders like BlockFi, or, uh, you know, some people have done things like sell calls on LedgerX, right? There's really not many good choices, and all of them are kind of institutional or large holder oriented. So I'm excited to see a little bit more access here for normal people. Okay, so so say say all uh, so 
here's the the thought process that I've often gone through with with Bitcoiners is at some point the demand for Bitcoin on Ethereum for producing trustless alpha on Ethereum is going to be really high. And then something like this is created and then you can start to get alpha on Ethereum with your Bitcoin, which means that your Bitcoin on your BTC on Bitcoin is just kind of sitting there being static. And then your all the Bitcoin on Ethereum is gaining 0.5 to 3% a year. And so the incentive to move all the BTC is uh, to Ethereum is pretty strong. What happens when what happens when all the BTC comes to Ethereum? If that is indeed the truth and Ethereum doesn't break in Ethereum 2.0 and it exists into the future and DeFi grows and grows and grows, well, there's going to just be more and more incentive to put Bitcoin on Ethereum. What's left of the Bitcoin blockchain in that, in that space? In the, in the logical conclusion, all of the Bitcoin might be transacted on Ethereum, which might have a super scalable, uh, very low cost blockchain. In comparison to Bitcoin, which is not scaled and very ex- expensive, uh, what, what what's left of the Bitcoin blockchain, and when it comes to the the value of the block space? So uh, on on the flip side of the same scenario, uh, say that this actually happens and takes off, and all of the Bitcoin moves to Ether, uh, to Ethereum. Uh, what what good is Ether anymore? <laughs> touche, touche. <laughs> um, you know, when Ethereum is just a Bitcoin scaling and application solution, uh, I I don't know if the uh, the Ether maximalists are going to be super happy. Well, we get all of the we <laughs> uh, stakers, Ether stakers get all of the fees that are being paid uh, in in Ether, and so all of the economic activity on Ethereum gets paid out to ETH holders in Ether in their stake, right? And so at least in that small, it's, that doesn't answer your question fully, but at least in that small um, uh, realm, uh, that doesn't go away. Uh, why, why should we stake Ether if we have the opportunity to stake Bitcoin instead? Not for the economic security of Ethereum. Uh, well, isn't Bitcoin more economically valuable? Yeah, but you can't you can't stake Bitcoin in Ethereum, not in, not in proof of stake Ethereum. I mean, well, uh, not in current designs for proof of stake Ethereum. Right. There's no way they're ever going to let Bitcoin staking happen on Ethereum. That will not happen. <laughs> um, yeah, we've talked, or rather, you know, in the context of Ethereum, we've talked about economic abstraction before. Mm-hmm. The ability to pay gas and other protocol right. fees and other assets. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a major thread for ETH2. You know, can you have an execution environment that pays fees in DAI the same way you pay you know, fees in XDAI in the XDAI approval POA network, mm-hmm. right? Um, I would expect that we have shards or execution environments where fees and staking rewards are paid, you know, potentially in other assets or that allow you to stake other assets. So it's a super interesting thought experiment, right? Like what happens if Bitcoin comes onto Ethereum and then just pushes out Ether and then Bitcoin is this proof of stake that on this chain that Ether built, like pretty cool, like sci-fi novel topic. But there's EIP-1559. Have you heard of it? Uh, which one is that? That uh, burns Ether. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gas management. Yeah, it's a fee market one, right? And it removes, it just totally nixes uh, economic, ex- economic abstraction. 
and, and and to my knowledge, it's it's uh, pretty uncontentious. It's pretty well supported. Uh, the only reason why it's not being implemented into the next hard fork is that it just needs more uh, testing around it. Right. Um, Rick Dudley's working on that one, right? Uh, I don't know. Eric Connor proposed it. Um, it was one of one of many of, of Vitalik's brainchilds, and then Eric Connor um, put the EIP together. Uh, Rick Dudley might be working on it. I don't know. Yeah, it's been a while since I looked at the MinFi stuff. But that would be the thing that that holds Ether together while while Bitcoin's value comes to Ethereum. I mean, uh, burning Ether is not a significant burden if there's you know if Ether's not worth very much. Well, if we're talking about burning Ether while it's not worth very much, then we're burning a lot of Ether because it's not worth very much, and then comparatively the the total supply of Ether goes down faster, which makes it more scarce. So it's kind of like an equilibrium generating machine. Do you think, wait, 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 wait. Do you think that Ether doesn't need to be valuable? That That's kind of an interesting question. You know, need to be in what context? Well, in DeFi, it absolutely needs to be. And in economic security and proof of stake. The, the, doesn't doesn't the, the coin of every blockchain need to have as much value as possible for economic security? Well, both of those, you know, need some valuable asset. There's no reason for DeFi or proof of stake that it needs to be Ether. Oh, my heart. <laughs> well, okay. It, well, you know, both ahead. of these, you know, we're relying on a credible threat of costing you money, right? Um, with CDPs, if you don't keep it collateralized, we're going to yank some valuable asset for you. Mm-hmm. With proof of stake, if you're not online and validating appropriately, or if you equivocate, we're going to slash your stake. Right. Uh, both of these need some value that we can credibly take from you. But there's no like requirement that it be Ether. It is Ether in you know, Ethereum today as a accident of history because you know, that's what the chain launched with. This may not always be the case. And if you look at like Cosmos, you know, their plan is to have completely heterogeneous zones with many different assets, many different proof of stake systems, staking different assets. Um, it's, uh, it's possible that in the future we see Ethereum move the same direction. So many Ethereum people are just triggered right now. I just don't see it. I mean, it just just because it's possible doesn't mean that like a majority or even any significant amount of people are going to want that. Like Ether is valuable inside of Ethereum because inside Ethereum, it's super liquid and super valuable. And so it powers DeFi with its value, right? And and that's what's getting transferred into proof of stake. And so like maybe it's theoretically possible to to Indiana Jones it and just like swap it out one the the gold one for the sandbag and then the sandbag's the gold one but like you need you need uh so many people to be on board with that and I just don't see that happening like I I don't think you you could maybe you could submit some research document that shows bitcoiners that this is possible and you'd be like, all right, Bitcoiners, all you need to do is you need to get all your Bitcoin into TBTC and move it over to Ethereum. And then we can just push out Ether and then boom, there's Bitcoin, the main chain, and then Bitcoin, it's proof of stake side chain that was Ethereum and now it's Bethereum. I don't think they would want to do that either. You know, the what's driving DeFi right now is primarily that 
there's a lot of ether out there and really nothing to do with it. You know, we talked about getting alpha on your bitcoins earlier. There's you know not a lot of ways to get alpha on your ether either. And so people are holding ether as working capital or holding it speculatively. But I wouldn't say that its value is driving DeFi. I would say that the lack of ways to deploy it is driving DeFi. Um, what's the lending rate on Ether on Compound right now? Like 20 basis points, something ridiculous like that? That's not driven by Ether's value or like a bunch of strong hands really holding onto it. That's driven by the fact that nobody wants to borrow it on Compound. Yeah, I've always been... So people have always said that, um, you know, the Ether borrow rates are so low, but isn't that because the only thing when you borrow Ether, the only thing you can do with it is short it? And that's why that's why it takes on, on DYDX, which is, which is an Ether leverage long platform, uh, borrowing DAI is 30% right now, because when you borrow DAI, you short DAI by buying Ether with it. You short DAI in relation to its value with Ether. And so I don't see, like, people are getting alpha on their Ether by using DAI, which is just Ether in its other form. It's stable Ether, but they're getting alpha on their Ether by shorting DAI. They're getting alpha on their Ether by shorting DAI. Shorting uh, DAI's value in relation to Ether's value. Um, you're kind of presupposing that people are willing to pay a premium to do this via DYDX instead of just opening up a CDP, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Nobody yes, should different, be... Different amounts of leverage. Yeah, different amounts of leverage. We're, we're seeing more supply of Ether available to lend than we are seeing demand to borrow Ether. Right. And, you know, that implies that the people who don't have Ether don't really want it, and the people who have Ether don't really want it either. They're not looking to liquidate their position, but they also have no other economic use for it. You're right. They don't have any economic use for it because proof of stake is not a thing yet. But well, they do want it because they're not selling it. They're putting it out to lend. But lender, but borrowers don't want to borrow it, maybe because they're fearful of it's going up in price, and then they have to pay back a higher value than they borrowed. So that's that's why I think like the ETH stake rate is going to be at the bottom of everything, right? Like your alpha on your ether is always going to be in comparison to the ETH stake rate. And if you earned two percent alpha on your ether, but the ETH stake rate was three percent, well, you're actually down one percent, which is just the risk of capital just how finance works right yeah do you think uh staking is a good proxy for the risk-free rate risk-free rate i've heard this before can you define it nick Badia talked about that in the context of lightning oh yeah 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 yes i do yeah so typically we use the risk-free rate to discount future cash flows right mm-hmm. it's an important thing in like financial analysis company anyone planning on a financial time frame of longer than like six months so in us dollars we typically use like the three-month t-bill as a stand-in for the hypothetical risk-free rate of return Mm -hmm. um i'm not sure if staking is really risk-free yeah but then again like i don't know what in DeFi is i guess you could argue that compound is risk-free and so the compound rate is the risk-free rate. Yikes. Yeah, not 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 compound in its current form. <laughs> but but yes, the idea idea of compound, yeah. I mean, compound in even when compound fixes its holes, uh 
it's not going to be risk-free because there's always going to be contract risk because there's always bugs. But that's also going to be the same thing with like ETH nodes. But it should be extremely risk minimized, right? To run an Ethereum node. That, that should be pretty easy to do. Like even if your Ethereum node goes down, you should be able to spin one up on the other side of the country. Right. Um, I would call that risk-free. We've, we've seen a little bit in Cosmos so far. There have been technical problems that caused equivocation. Um, so I think the Cosmos stakers lost 5% of their stake and then a bit of revenue from that incident. Mm -hmm. So I think for at least a few years, it's going to be really hard to think of staking as risk-free. Mm -hmm. um, maybe when we have a lot more infrastructure for this. James, uh, I know we're kind of getting uh, to the end of our time here. I feel like I want to get a high level opinion, like a high level perspective of the general cryptocurrency space from you. I feel like uh, you are generally in a very unique position. Uh, I don't know of many people who um, are working with so many technologies so intimately, uh, yet are Bitcoiners. So um, I, I find that to be interesting, and I kind of want to just end with that. You know what? Uh... I think what you'll find as you explore the space a little more is that there are Bitcoiners all over. Um, you know, we, we see this in Ethereum and Cosmos and Polkadot and you know, any chain we like, talk to. A lot of people got into this because of Bitcoin and still you know, have a special place in their hearts and portfolios for Bitcoin. It's not always trendy to say so, but uh, I think this is going to be Bitcoin interoperability is going to be a major focus of the next year and a half, two years, as you know, things like TBTC make to more and more networks. Uh, one of the things you know I've been asking people for years is, what's your Bitcoin strategy? Um, there's a clear you know like leader in the space that is more mature, more robust, and more stable than anything else out there. If you don't have a strategy for how to play nice with or beat Bitcoin, um, you're, you're probably not doing crypto right. And one last question on that note. Uh, are you hopeful that TBTC will kind of stitch these communities together? Because we could definitely use some of that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I'm hopeful because I think there's a very small chance of that. Um, I, I've I've been in these communities for a few years now, and uh, I don't really see a lot of like mending the wall between the Ethereum and Bitcoin communities and developers. Uh, what I do hope for is a you know, new group of engineers who are focused on building things and finding the best chains to build on, rather than being you know an Ether partisan or a Bitcoin partisan. You know, we've been starting a lot of that work ourselves at Suma and at Keith, and we're starting, you know, a new trade group essentially called Crosschain Group to try to build standards for grassroots interoperability and for you know training and giving a platform to these cross-chain engineers. Well, I think that's a great note to end it on. James, if people want to find out more about you or Suma or your cross-chain work, where should they go? So uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's underscore press switch. Uh, Suma, sign up for our mailing list at uh, suma.one, O-N-E. 
and crosschain.group. All one word, crosschain.group. Awesome. Thank you, James. And you guys can also follow the podcast at POV CryptoPod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian? Yep, you can find me at CK underscore Snarks. Remember, rate and review the show. Engage with us on Twitter, all that good stuff. We love the support, and we appreciate you all, fam. Thanks a lot, James. Thanks, James. Thanks, guys.